That was an impression of Sean as a three-year-old trying to say Spider-Man. I guess I kind of mean the idea of the dance is kind of false. I mean, I doubt I'm even going. I mean, I'm sure you're obviously not going, right? See, I have this philosophy. You have a philosophy? If I go somewhere and someone I know is there, then cool, there's something natural about it. But once you start making plans, then you have, like, like obligations, uh, and that basically blows. So my feeling is, whatever happens, happens. I have to say, I really respect that. Bill, if you will come with me, you will float too. George. I saw something. A clown. Yeah, I saw him too. The Mona Lisa has no eyebrows. Venus de Milo lacks arms. Chickens have no lips. Why ask why? Try Bud Dry. It's cold filtered for smooth draft taste. And dry brewed for no aftertaste. So when it comes to refreshment, nothing's missing. Hello, Screedlers. Retweet if you're watching Ozark on Netflix. That's right. I said it. Retweet if you're watching Ozark on Netflix. Jason Bateman. Holy fuck. It's like True Detective meets Breaking Bad meets Winter's Bone. Wow. Oh. M. Fucking. G. I'm joking. It's not very good. I'm only on episode 4 though. It could pick up. This is Staff Only, the studio manager at The Humor and the Abject Podcast hosted by Sean J. Patrick Carney. Do you like fast tempos and odd time signatures? Then you've come to the right place. Today's episode is sponsored by Bud Dry. It's also sponsored by My So-Called Life. And it's also sponsored by the reboot of Stephen King's seminal novel celebrating the rivetingly nasty-ass sexuality of clowns. That's right. I'm talking about it. Who's ready to fuck a clown? Quick question. Did you hear that Stephen King is trying to suck his own? It. Zinger. Bangarang. Eat ass until the baby boomers die. It will be soon. Mark my words. I can't wait to read Hillary Clinton's hardback apology letter. I'm Ira Glass. Welcome to Jackass. It's episode 8 of Humor in the Abject. I'm your host, Sean J. Patrick Carney. I just got back to New York from a week out in Oregon and am adjusting back to this rat-infested metropolitan bog of demoralizing reality. Out in Oregon, the weed is legal, the rivers are clean, and the Tillamook Cheese Factory is teeming with Trump supporters. Uh, my girlfriend and I visited it 
during our trip to take the Cheese Factory tour, but they're remodeling until 2018. So all we saw was a replica of a cow milking machine and the gift shop. Uh, do not visit the Tillamook Cheese Factory at the present time. Uh, one out of five stars. It is a scam and not one of the cool long con kinds. I'm back in the studio today with a pal and a mentor of sorts, the comedian, performance artist, and self-proclaimed relational Stalinist Michael Portnoy. Michael and I met in 2012 at the Banff Center in Alberta, Canada, where I was fortunate enough to participate in an artist residency program that he and his wife Yeva organized called the Experimental Comedy Training Camp. It was seven weeks of anarchical bliss, I must say, and they forced us to perform constantly with brand new material to the point that uh, the 15 or so of us who were participating in the residency lost our goddamn minds. I wouldn't trade that experience for anything, though, and we had guest faculty like comedian Reggie Watts and illustrator Stephen M. Johnson. Very special times. Michael's infamous around the art world as a merry prankster. He's got decades of work under his belt. Um, he's the wild child behind uh, what I can only describe as the elegant soy bomb stunt during Bob Dylan's 98 Grammy performance of Love Sick. Uh, look that up on YouTube if you haven't seen it. He's performed at pretty much every museum that exists uh, and is one of the driving forces confusing the disciplines of art and comedy. Uh, it was a real pleasure to have him in the studio this week, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. And I'd like for all of you listening to see if you can guess which of the songs in today's episode were written by Michael. So without further ado, here's our conversation. I have some ice in there. Um, well, Michael Portnoy, welcome to Humor the Abject. Thank you, Sean. It's wonderful to have you. Well, maybe a good place to start would be kind of where I first met you. Mm -hmm. um, and that was the Experimental Comedy Training Camp at Banff in Canada. Yes. And I am curious how you put that together and how you uh, approached the center with it or if you mm -hmm. were approached and just what that process of design with Yeva was like to put something um, sure. of that nature together. Because I think when we were emailing, I said, I haven't, you, you guys did another one a couple years later. Yeah, but, we did. The Confuse the Cat residency. Yeah, but I haven't seen anything like that since then. And I remember when the call went out from BAMP Center. I, I think I had seven or eight different people email it to mm -hmm. me within 24 hours. And we're mm -hmm. like, hey, there's a residency for people like you. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I, I found out about BAMP because uh, I saw an announcement about a, a residency that Ragnar Kjartansson was doing who's a pal of mine, and I'd never even heard about Banford before, I don't think, but it sounded, I, I started looking into it, and I thought, oh, that would be so much fun to propose something. And then, you know, since we've seen in the last few years that comedy has become kind of more of a thing in the visual art yeah. world, but at that time, it wasn't so much, and it still was a kind of, entertainment was a kind of dirty word. Yeah, entirely. I think, yeah, I mean, that was only five years ago, which uh -huh. is kind of funny to think about, but it was... Um, it did seem very strange, and I had no idea what I was in for or mm -hmm. who I would meet. Yeah. And I think the feedback that I got from the other people who also participated were that they all felt like they were kind of operating in these small vacuums. Mm -hmm. And they might be in, um, like, 
Bean Gilsdorf, I think, was in San Francisco, and there were all these people from Toronto who didn't yeah. even know each other. Exactly. And and were operating these weird scenes, and then came there, and all of a sudden there was this kind of thing that like, oh, it's it's okay to call this art, and it's also okay to be entertaining, mm-hmm. which I think was a, a very liberating thing because that gets uh, kind of beaten out of you in school, mm-hmm. uh, to say the least. And it's well, kind of, yeah, the fact that like uh, people think that it's either entertaining or it's critical, and that you cannot have critical forms of entertainment. Uh-huh. You know, it's like, um, but. Uh, I also think, yeah, I wanted to combine kind of a bunch of different things in that residency, some theory, some, you know, improvisational methodologies, some kind of techniques from uh, contemporary dance and theater, uh, you know, really forcing people to be kind of on their feet and producing constantly, making that there was that weekly uh, yeah. performance. And night. then it <laughs> happened again the same night, like an hour later. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. But and I then think the, the last week we did it every night. Yeah, yeah. But that was, I think that was something else that was kind of interesting about it too, is coming um, from a place where, you know, in school, rooting a lot of theory and things like this, but yeah. really nothing rooted in humor. And I mean, t- we did a lot of reading at that residency. Um, not like some crazy grad school amount, but mm-hmm. there was a pretty decent reading list. And we're also doing all of those physical workshops and yeah. things like that. Yeah, and, I th- yeah. and I think the um, the article that I mentioned earlier that you were kind of burnt on uh, burnt out on talking about these projects because that was a pretty lengthy thing. You did have one thing in there, though, that kind of stood out to me that was, um, and I'm paraphrasing here, but you basically said that you wish that more of the art schools, um, especially in the States, mm-hmm. would have some kind of performance methods training because Definitely. people dabble in performance, but... I think, yeah, the ending was uh, you want them to have a basic knowledge of their diaphragm and where their sit bones are. Yeah, I, well, you know, there's a difference because now so many people are interested, quote unquote, in performance. Uh-huh. You know, it's like, and then you see people, uh, so someone's interested in performance, so then they hire a ballet dancer to do some kind of nonsense, on, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in a gallery, you know. But I think there's, um, if you're going to be working with performance, just like if you're going to be working with, paint and you learn how to draw first it's great to know how to your tools that you're using it's great to know how to use your voice how to how to be on stage how to use your your eyes how your gaze how to how to kind of manifest presence all of these things that um you know there's there's solid techniques to to learning these things um and also how to generate ideas from the body Mm -hmm. um generate even text from the body generate um you know instead generate concepts from the body instead of coming up with a concept and being all in your head in your laptop and and reading some kind of theory book and and using that to be the engine for your work you know yeah there seemed like there was uh for one of the first times that i had ever felt it was more like the physicality was really part of the humor and not strictly in a slapstick way mm-hmm. but in a way that was like the body was uh, engendering this kind of like thing that was going to happen. And we started to understand, I think for the first time, even people who'd spent a lot of time on stage in mm-hmm. performance art contexts, they started to understand actually like inhabiting themselves mm-hmm. and how they were moving and how they were doing these different things. And even our, even our voices and the different games that we played with kind of like, I can't exactly remember what all of them were, but I do recall one where we, I think we all sat around a table and you had to have your eyes closed and people could like run up and like tap somebody out and remove them. And there would be like a topic and everybody was sort of talking about it and didn't know who the different characters were. But it was just, I mean, perhaps you just Mm. came up with it that evening or something, but (laughs) it was really... I don't remember that one, but yeah. But it was really kind of, um, it was exhausting. Mm -hmm. But in this way where you started to kind of, uh, you got this weird fatigue where all of a sudden like you just started babbling things or things came out and it became really... um, 
I don't know, like, I guess primal is kind of a goofy word, but mm. it became much more sort of like uh, less cerebral. And yeah, more intuitive. Yeah, yeah. just to like to open up those channels. I mean, I think a lot of people were really in their heads or used to working in their heads. Their practice was very much in their heads. And just to open up those channels and, and to to let abstraction come out of your mouth, come out of your body. I mean, that's why I get so much out of dance and my, you know, like working with choreographers is just seeing how you can construct abstract meanings and experiences through yeah through physical uh physicals physicals yeah physicals physicals that's good but also uh the other thing that was great and i think a really good learning experience was thinking about um not just language in terms of words and things like that Mm -hmm. but um rhythmically to think about them in the same way that if you're singing but also consonant sounds and different things Mm -hmm. and what they connote Mm -hmm. and um, what is the 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 k the k sound the k sound <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. that you have that um, this evening <clears throat> I'm going to present a series of kitchen jokes. There's been much discussion about the intrinsic comedic value of hard consonants, such as the letter K. Uh, how the k sound in words is this little spike that depending on its housing and application, can, can either traumatize or tickle. Some of our the English languages, most sexually explicit and offensive words contain this sound, fuck, suck, cock, uh, crap, cunt. And as a prominent playwright pointed out, some of our silliest words, pickle, chicken, cucumber, and even the word joke itself. A recent study at the University of Hertfordshire found that in jokes, the duck is the funniest animal. I mean, I think we watched that uh, at part of the residency. And I mean, funnily enough, the first time that occurred to me that so many words that we use that, you know, inflict violence on other people have this really hard sound. Yeah. You know? but, well, that was like but a, also silly sounds, right? Like mm-hmm. pickle. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> pickle, cucumber. Right? <laughs> <laughs> no, but yeah, that was a thing. That was a thing I, I you know, I... Because I did this piece of the K sound like in 2006, this dance kind of like stand up. I played this professor of comedy, Professor Kiffy, who was telling all of these kind of jokes that were more like prose poems and had all these dancers enact them. But what they did had nothing to do with the jokes. And yeah, well, and and I read that thing that, um, you know, there's this theory. Well, that's why there's a kind of thing with comedians to try to use to end a joke with K sound Mm -hmm. words. You know, so that's why I saw her in my kayak, you know? <laughs> uh, <laughs> and so, um, so because it's like, it's, it's like this threat that's, that's false. It's a false yeah. threat. It, it looks, it sounds like someone being smashed or yeah, like yeah. bones being struck. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that was, uh, that was something too, that was, uh, interesting and also to kind of see how people do that, uh, presently around brooklyn in particular and i guess what i mean they don't the people who are doing this don't want it to be called alternative comedy and i don't want to call it that or indie mm-hmm. comedy or something but i don't really know what to what to address it as but um it's a group of people that are performing that seem much more like the people that i wish that i had met before that which i did meet at that mm-hmm. residency program but the people that i wish were in my life earlier and mm-hmm. having a real understanding of that kind of physicality and that uh, not every single thing that's funny is narrative setup, misdirection, mm-hmm. uh, punchline, or sure. something like that, that uh, creates this really 
pretty like static and rhythmic and um you know oftentimes pretty boring approach to comedy uh mm -hmm. being confused there's something really i think wonderful for an audience about mm -hmm. that um and i guess i want to ask you too because you know i'm witnessing this thing that's happening right now in brooklyn and trying to write about it and talk about it and i know that you were you know there's this other thing that people call alternative comedy that was mm -hmm. like 90s exactly. in new york right yeah. and i'm curious because i've heard i think i've heard like you know like mark maron discuss it or yeah, something totally. in he, him he, but he i'm like that guy he was alternative comedy yeah well so <laughs> it was a weird moment in time so basically in the in the early 90s i started performing like where i uh cut my teeth what do you say is that these um, oh i thought you meant physics i was like <laughs> that was your first bit you <laughs> is that these kind of uh this place there was this place called surf reality which was this uh it was a theater on the second floor on essex street and a guy lived next door to the i mean like it was a theater that he built out it was yeah. connected to this loft and this guy face boy at the time uh organized this Christian open name <laughs> organized this um open mic where there was every kind of manner of freaks coming there so there yeah. was there was like people who wanted to be artists and musicians and dancers and poets and then there was also some people that just did as a form of like therapy to get out of the house <laughs> and i mean there's some real yeah I'm sure. there. and so that was happening then then there started to be this alternative comedy scene and the nexus of it was at this place called uh, luna lounge which was on ludlow street right across from the old Max Fish, and mm -hmm. um, happened on every Monday night. And there was all of the, I mean, everyone was there that we know, like Louis C.K., Sarah Silverman, the guys from the state, like Michael Showalter, David Wayne, uh, Upright Citizens Brigade, who'd just come from Chicago, Janine Garofalo, Todd Berry, geez, like, you know, yeah. all of these people. And somehow a few of us freaks in the, <laughs> in these, like in in those more performancey places, got kind of uh, picked up and uh, you know inserted into that into that world. And that world was very weird because n most of the people to my I was very pissed off when I got in there because it was being called alternative comedy, mm -hmm. and for the most part, it was more like sort of casual comedy. Yeah, it was yeah. a lot of people that had the solid acts, but then sort of loosened it a little bit and was was more kind of finding their way through it mm -hmm. um and i thought you know hearing this phrase i thought okay i'm gonna come there and see a bunch of insanity but yeah. um so i already had an antagonistic relationship they all hated me because i'm some <laughs> kind of you know i come with these ridiculous outfits have no idea what i'm doing on stage <laughs> and do dancing half of the time and some uh you know, run around the audience naked and, and uh, you know, I would have these elaborate things like skits with all of these kind of people from that performance world that mm -hmm. I brought in. Um, but it was it was very weird because it was a very, like, frat environment, too. Yeah, it was I very imagine. male. Everyone there, there was industry people in the audience. Everyone was looking to get a sitcom. Yeah. And, uh, and I just found it, yeah, it was a very uncomfortable world for me. <laughs> for me. <laughs> I can imagine. I mean, I imagine the kind of uh, what was... But Mark Maron, though, Mark Maron <laughs> was the one guy who actually kind of took me under his wing, and he was a total sweetheart. And he was like, uh, you know, he we had this kind of... We had a great relationship. Like, he would he would kind of 
bring me on the stage sometimes <laughs> when, when I was, you know, I don't know, he, we would have this back and forth and yeah I, I imagine that the i mean as you're describing that i'm you know that's just like a micro generation before me but thinking about you know i was uh probably in you know middle school around that time but i'm watching some of those people eventually in movies and things and basically like i'm imagining the demeanor of like the people in reality bites and what mm. i thought um <laughs> what i thought people in their 20s acted like uh-huh. when i was a teenager which was just this kind of dejected gen x like <laughs> Not really nihilistic, but just kind of like, I don't know, yeah. you know, like that kind of vibe. And I was like, that's very different than I think what um, what qualifies as what people are referring to is that now, because it's uh, certainly a lot more spastic and it seems yeah. like... Uh, and more physical, more abstract. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was, at that time, there were some more things being called alternative comedy, like um, a night that Eugene Merman used to run. Oh, wow. That was actually a bu- bit more freaky than, than that other scene yeah um yeah no but exactly there's a lot of what you're saying <laughs> <laughs> well that's good i'm glad that i'm imagining it correctly but but you know then there was some i mean like uh seeing louis ck back in the day back then i mean he he was he was one of my my favorites because yeah no mm-hmm. he would do some amazing stuff back then yeah that's the people who i'm kind of paying attention to and watching now seem to have though that um it's interesting because there's still, you know, a, there's still a distinction between the disciplines, I think, in most mm-hmm. people's minds between art and comedy. But uh, these are people that, you know, even um, I was just looking at the, I think it's the Just for Laughs, like, lineup for, like, the new faces or something. Mm-hmm. And um, my pal Anna Fabrega is on it. And mm-hmm. she has in her bio specifically, you know, she's performed at these clubs. You've seen her uh, on these TV shows. Mm-hmm. And she's performed in galleries all over New York or right. something. And I just thought yeah. that was, like, the best thing to have in yeah, this comedian's yeah, yeah. bio because there's this fluidity that's going on and they kind of um i don't know if they'd call themselves performance artists they probably not want to be called that mm-hmm. but there's certainly much more about what interested me about performance art when i first kind of got exposed to it outside of just what you you know saw still images of alan capro's happenings or something in a book mm-hmm. in school and i think like reggie was one of the first people reggie watts that uh i saw do something in the context of performance art at the time-based arts festival in mm-hmm. portland that i was kind of like oh whoa yeah okay yeah, yeah, yeah. He's doing music. He's doing comedy. Yeah, like Reggie was like his presence was really missed back, back then. You know, yeah, in in those uh, at those places. Yeah, I guess he was probably in Seattle or something. Yeah, at that I time. don't think he was in New York. He came to New York later, like early two thousands. Can't remember. Yeah, because that seemed like that just kind of opened up some doors and things. Because I think that um, there's also a generosity with what he does. Yeah, you know, yeah. there there was such a, like a bitterness I felt and a kind of like cutthroatness in that world. And there's something very much more giving i think about reggie because he also comes from the music world too, yeah. to some extent and and the vibe i mean the objective is is very different yeah 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 you want to get people moving and exactly. having a good time and, exactly and i guess you know most most comedians want to get laughs but um they also have a, they have a much more antagonistic relationship mm-hmm. unless you know i don't know like the band fear or something mm-hmm. i'm sure would be an exception or a few but mm-hmm. for the most part people want to put on a show yeah. uh, in music and, and be entertaining and well that's what i loved about upright citizens brigade back then too because they had this real playfulness that i was that was missing for me in that scene all right we're going to take a quick break and hear from our sponsors and we'll be right back with more michael portnoy bud dry bud dry i'm so fucking high i need to drink a bud dry 
One time I went to these guys' house in East Lansing, Michigan, in like 2002 and they had an entire closet filled with cases of Bud Dry that they'd found when they broke into a restaurant that had gone out of business. They suckled on these little bottles all day every day. Chugging Bud Dry. Learning to fly. I looked at one of the dust-covered cases of the beer and the expiration date was from 1996. One of those guys is in jail now for selling methadone and another one is a lawyer in northern Michigan. It goes to show you that the wake does not power the boat. We are in charge of our own destinies. Do you want to be a lawyer or a prisoner? Why ask why? Drink Bud Dry. You know those guys? Up in the mountains. They're guys. Who makes snow, like... Like as their job? Yeah. I would really like to do that. In my opinion, Jordan was all wrong for Angela. But the preceding tender moment serves as a reminder for why she became interested in this enigmatic and rebellious young man. We'd like to thank My So-Called Life for sponsoring today's episode. But we'd also like to point out that the ghoul who wrote its theme song. Acclaimed television theme composer W.G. Snuffy Walden. Refused to let us play the theme without paying him directly through Venmo. Eat my ass, W.G. Snuffy Walden. Let's get back to the show. And so what I wanted to ask is you're, so you're performing in, you know, you start out in this kind of weirdo alt cabaret, DIY cabaret type of thing that's going mm -hmm. on. And... Were you, where did you come from before that? Uh, I guess I graduated. I mean, I graduated college before that. I was, yeah, I was in my early 20s when I, when I was doing that stuff. And then I was also like, I was doing solo performances too. And I started doing stuff at like PS122 back then. Mm -hmm. like you do kind of working my way up that world. Yeah. Um. And then about, around that time too, exact same time I was working, like working those comedy in those comedy uh venues i uh, some choreographer i started working with some choreographers and i was very interested in physical theater like i studied i studied literature in school and uh creative writing but then i was also went to this program for for theater too so uh and i was interested in the more physical theater and some of like the 60s new york groups like open theater and living theater all that kind of stuff and um so, yeah, 
I started working with choreographers and started thinking about more uh, about what I was doing as dance. Yeah. And um, so it wasn't like something you weren't doing. It's not like you had like a, a proper formal dance background. It no, was not like at an, all. Yeah, it was an interest more physical in theater. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the lines are pretty, you know, the lines are the cross. There's a lot of crossover there. But, yeah, I'm um, sure. Uh, and the stuff I was doing for this choreographer I worked with first, Kusil Jia Huang, um, was... It was very like upper body dance. I'm saying, I'm saying, like I know. Yes, of course. Well, yeah. no, like I don't know how to leap through the air and do fancy footwork. Oh, right so on. Yeah, yeah. I can bend, I can walk, but you know, I wasn't doing kicks and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's was funny more, when, I, when I was explaining to um, the person up front when you were going to get here, and I said, uh, "There's going to be a man coming in soon." Um, and he's kind of tall, and I sort of went like this because you have this sort of. Uh, if people can't see what I'm doing, we sort of waving my arms, and she goes, "She goes, you're making him look like one of those wacky waving inflatable like arm flailing tube men." And I was station. like, "I guess he does." <laughs> Not really, but yeah, <laughs> but anyways, that's that's a very that's a that's top dancing. <laughs> yeah, top dancing, <laughs> limb dancing. <laughs> that's pretty cool. Um, no, it was very you know it's a close to dance theater more yeah. than than dancey dance. And so these these things are kind of. It seems like you're always kind of on this um, uh, on this sort of misfit edge of whatever's going on. And then you, after comedy, well, there's well, not a, after. I'll I mean, tell you quick, still. There's a funny thing that happened. Like I was, um, yeah, there was one, I was working on this really kind of emotional solo, I suppose, for this, this choreographer, the, this group dance, Kumiko Kimoto, where I was in a chair and sort of contorting in this way. And then I didn't have anything to do at this uh, Luna Lounge one night. And I put on some kind of music and just introduced this thing as like and f- for my next joke and gave some kind of long context and then did this dance that I'd been rehearsing. And suddenly it's a it's a funny joke. Yeah, yeah. And that was a nice moment to, for me to realize how the exact same thing in one context yeah, yeah. Is, is, is people crying in the audience. And in the other context, it's like uh, ridiculous and funny, you know? <laughs> Um, and so then you're you kind of navigate from comedy which you've you know kept a foot in obviously but Mm -hmm. how did you get involved in art because you can go to art school and you're i mean i guess new york kind of forces people to do that here and there but i mean i was always interested in the in the history of performance and and in visual art i had so many friends that were artists and um very aware of the scene in new york and i'd kind of done stuff throughout the in galleries done performances in galleries occasionally even in the late 90s i guess did something at some kind of uh participatory work for a big group of strangers at the at ps1 in like 2000 so i dabbled in stuff in the world but i guess it wasn't really till i made my first sculpture which was this uh what I call abstract gambling table. Mm-hmm. It looks like a gambling, looks sort of futuristic gambling table, but uh, the rules are all completely absurd yeah. and cryptic. Um, I made that around 2005 for a little show at this space that Dexter Sinister had. Yeah, yeah. Um, downstairs in a little uh-huh. basement. I remember, I mean, I never went to it, but I know of yeah. it because I remember hearing about it like on the. Uh, when I was living out west, that it was uh-huh. this space, yeah. and then I think I don't know when, how long is that still around? I mean, no, no, because I must have visited New York for the first time in like 
maybe 2006 or okay. maybe in 2008 was when I, I i think i was looking for it maybe it was still operation i just couldn't find the mm-hmm. damn thing i mean there weren't yeah it wasn't easy to find you didn't have a i didn't have a phone like i have now right there was no i was just kind of wandering up and down whatever street it yeah. was just being like <laughs> I, I would give up i don't mm-hmm. know where this is um but was that was that meant to be interacted with yeah or? yeah so i ran it like there everyone was drinking gin which is <laughs> not good for me um but everyone was uh, and there was a bouncer at the door. You came in there. The, there's four people sitting around, and there's all these kind of mangled, dysfunctional dice at the table. Mm-hmm. And I'm dressed as this kind of uh, wacko croupier figure, and I'm just, um, you know, I'm saying parallel support, release the fives, uh, d- you know, uh, kicking people out. There's real <laughs> money on the table. People all have to put down five or twenty to play. People yeah. are winning and losing money, but they have no idea <laughs> what the rules are. And the system is pretty—I mean, it's pretty worked. It's complicated enough that people don't think it's complete nonsense. Yeah. Um, but people still really want to win, so they're sure. really trying to figure it out. And a lot of it involves them sort of moving how how the how these little dice, which are almost like these characters on a miniature stage, are moving across the. You know, you have to kind of animate them as a yeah. player and use and basically pick up. You kind of, I get you, um, you have to learn how to behave and speak huh. to yeah. play. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> um, and so that's, I mean, that's a, is that your first foray into this kind of sculpture? Uh, it was my first sculpture, really. Yeah. And what about the social sculpture aspect of it? In well, terms I'd, done, of <laughs> I'd done earlier stuff like that. Like I was always, you know, what I was calling Stranger Games, which is yeah, still yeah. the name of my website, right, which yeah. is kind of stupid, but That's I kept fine. it for. <laughs> I don't even think of it as what the words connote anymore. But, um, but yeah, like I think that was the name of this thing I did in two thousand and two thousand at PS One, which was, uh, like I let a hundred strangers into this space and gave them this, and it was sort of like a a choreographed salon for 100 strangers. So they all had a specific place to stand. I choreographed them through uh, like almost like a social dance or something. Yeah. I choreographed them through the space to, to, to have like five different conversational partners, and they had these envelopes which they opened that gave different constraints for the interaction. So I was always into this kind of providing language and behavior constraints for for people yeah that makes sense i thought i thought that when you referenced that earlier that you were doing something for another choreographer or something oh, okay, at ps1 gotcha, but gotcha. um because that brings me to um i think uh you know i've described your work to a few friends before and i remember after banff and things like that um people really get a kick out of the concept of relational stalinism mm-hmm. um and you know can you just break that down a yeah, little bit sure. for the people who aren't familiar um well that's what i started calling it was about the same time i developed those gambling tables uh yeah i mean it was a direct satire of relational aesthetics and Mm. so the the works associated with relational aesthetics always you know struck me as too feel good Mm -hmm. and too kind of loose in their in their behavioral uh, kind of program you know that we're we're going to kind of sit on these lounge chairs and kind of you know, develop some knowledge together somehow. Yeah, and, we, and we've talked about this before. I mean, so, and certainly there's great work in that genre and things like that, but a, a large portion of it is pretty much just shit that people do um, at the bar, but exactly. they just put it in a gallery. Well, yeah, or, or so we're eating, uh, but now we're eating <laughs> in, a, in a museum or, you know. 
So wow. And so, <laughs> so you know, and so so relational Stalinism was like this using this iron fist as you know like a slippery iron fist yeah. to make people uh speak and behave in ways uh that are a bit alien that are like kind of more intuitive, more abstract. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's well, there's a I mean, I, I I don't think I've read it in a pretty long time. I I rewrote it one time in uh, American from English, but oh, right. um, Capro's uh, Notes on the Elimination of the Audience, which is kind yeah. of his like treatise on the happening or something. And, mm-hmm. and there's a part in it where he speaks pretty specifically about how, um, and again, I'm paraphrasing, but something about how you have to be a director. And mm-hmm. I know that you I've heard you use the phrase director of behavior and things like that, but mm-hmm. it seems like um, there's something about the, the context where people perceive this history of maybe relational aesthetics or maybe more recently social practice art mm-hmm. that they think that it's going to be this kind of like, oh, we're all authoring this together. And mm-hmm. so it's, it has always seemed pretty hilarious watching documentations, uh, watching documentation of your performances where the audience is, you know, like mortified or terrified or confused <laughs> mm-hmm. or you're forcing them into these situations. And I imagine, though, that afterwards, um, while in the moment, they might be a little bit shaken up, mm-hmm. that it's like they've had an experience afterwards instead of... Yeah, uh, well, I mean, I, I just, I'm just, I believe that you need to, you need like, a, you need an iron fist to uh, disabuse people of their habits. You yeah. know, other, unless they'll just revert back to using language the same way, uh, using their bodies the same way. And if you want to increase the their level level of abstraction in communication and kind of in intuition you need to really shake them out of it and so like that terror yeah it's important but i guess like terror mixed with comedy because if it was all terror if it was all a horrible experience i think it would <laughs> you know there's there needs to be that 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 lightness to it too that that yeah the relief know. that yeah. comes with it um it, have you ever had responses that were pretty kind of like I, <laughs> threw you for a loop while you're yeah, trying yeah, yeah. to be the director? Well, I was in that first in that first uh, abstract gambling thing. I did throw someone out just after they won. <laughs> I gave them the money and then I said, um, uh, like, uh, get the fuck out of the room and never come back. Something to that extent. <laughs> and... Um, uh, and she was, even though she won, and it was clear, I, to me, it was clearly ridiculous what yeah, I'm doing. Yeah. She supposedly was crying outside oh, that no. I kicked her out. Oh, <laughs> so, no. <laughs> so that's sad. I mean, she was, I mean, I thought it was, I thought it was very clear that it was, that is preposterous what I'm doing. Because right. My demeanor is so over the top and, and you know. Like when you go to the <laughs> restaurants where they're rude to you. It's like you kind of get a kick out of it, you know, if that's Yeah, their, but that's, that sucks that she took it to, <laughs> to heart too much. And then there was someone, actually this kind of sculptor whose name I forget, but when I did my first kind of big institutional show of those uh, gambling works at the Sculpture Center, which was like 2006, 2007, in the catacombs downstairs, Yeah. Uh, there was like a sculptor who was on the board of the Sculpture Center who also got, <laughs> got kicked out <laughs> of the space because I just didn't, you know, he wasn't sort of, people are rewarded by their ingenuity and yeah. they're kind of, uh, their level of abstraction and you know what whatever just I just didn't uh, relate to him and so I threw mm-hmm. him out and he was very pissed and told the director <laughs> of Sculpture Center that you know yeah that's all right I mean just, I don't know like I think that's perfectly fine but I'd say on the other side the most rewarding things like that is when you take people who come in 
like uh, in this thing I did, 27 Gnosis. Yeah. Documenta, you take... That's the one with the really sloped walls. Yeah, that people, it's like people um, this, kind of, this kind of mound of mud inside, yeah. which is this like... Uh, <laughs> This per, this lilac spherical stage that you stand on it's a, it's like a linguistic game show, mm-hmm. and um, the most rewarding thing is you take people who come in with a set with a kind of let's say they're from the art world they have their jargon that they're used to using and they feel very comfortable with, and when you when you when you see that there's the resistance to speaking in any other kind of way yeah and. You end up by the end, if I can end up by the end, kind of cracking them and, and they're using they're using words in a way that might not even, that's sort of um, uh, some kind of, in some kind of liminal way, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. that, that's, and, but understanding it yeah. sort of partially, if there's, if I can do that, that that's, that's the best, I think. It seems, I mean, that's a, pretty that's a more i guess it's an abstract version of uh someone busting up laughing i mean mm-hmm. you're doing the same thing where you're giving them this kind of like permission for abandon mm-hmm. um but it's funny because i guess we all sort of agree that laughter is this natural response and mm-hmm. it, in, in the context it makes sense and everybody's doing it and it's okay but the second that it involves language or mm-hmm. something that's communicative other than just a guffaw yeah people get very uptight true, and they true. don't want to they don't want to play around with uh, the different kinds of words because it's also, I mean, it's a, I think especially like an art world person who comes in, um, you know, it's kind of their bread and butter is their vocabulary mm-hmm. of like however many thousand words that they exactly. use pretty regularly and sort exactly. of like reduce them to like a brute <laughs> sort of like bellowing or barking or. Yeah. Or just to give them, you know, like what I'd say, this kind of, uh, now I'm going to use their same words they use, but it's like <laughs> this agglutinative way of making sense. So instead of using some kind of long, multisyllabic word to connote something i give them like s- small very uh, words that have a good mouth feel like very yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. juicy chunky like w- monosyllabic words that yeah, then they yeah. have to forge together <laughs> in, in, in and make things you know and, and create compound thoughts by gluing words together yeah you know yeah that's that's really good i think that the uh and I wonder, too, it, as you've gotten further along in your career, I mean, people are, surely there are some people, especially if you're performing uh, internationally or in a slightly new context, too, mm-hmm. um, there are definitely going to be some people who are new to it and, and kind of, you know, maybe are on a board at a museum mm-hmm. or something or, or bought tickets to the festival and kind of are just showing up. But um, I wonder if it's become a little bit easier to win people over because you probably have some people on the home team in the audience who are like, oh, we're coming to see Michael Portnoy on purpose. And so they kind of know what they're getting into and maybe they can assist in bringing those people to that place a little bit sooner. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, I wonder, I'm, I mean, I guess, because people are pretty uptight too in general. So maybe it doesn't make a difference. <laughs> I don't know. I, I'm just thinking to like the places I performed recently. It seems a bit like the, the audience is ready for that in those kind of places, uh-huh. sort of mid-level arts institutions and overseas, you know, yeah, they're open. They're open, definitely. Yeah. And you, um, I mean, I think one of the things that I really like about your work and the people who I'm paying attention to right now and people that I kind of try to model 
I guess what I do myself after is people who can really fluidly navigate between, like you said earlier, like these two different contexts, mm-hmm. but not not so extreme that in one people are weeping and in the other one people are laughing because mm-hmm. it's a comedy night or something, but um, specifically with like sight and space. And yeah. I think that like the context of a museum is radically different, both just um, just sound wise mm-hmm, and, and audience wise and everything else versus <laughs> versus, museum. versus like a versus a nightclub or a small yeah. theater or a mid-sized venue or something like that. But, um, but you also, I mean, you can navigate between those contexts, but you also have a pretty like, uh, <laughs> you have a pretty iron fist when it comes to the production of the sets that you're uh-huh. performing on and things. And I mean, are those, are those installations, sculptures, are they simply like, are they your stage that you perform on? Cause yeah. I, you know, I've also seen you just grab a microphone and go for it. Yeah, and it yeah. seems like you're equally. I know. I love, I love going from the different contexts. I mean, like, um, I love making work for theaters, for galleries, for museums. Um, I think, yeah, and there's with each one comes different, a different set of expectations, a, a different uh, pitfalls. You know, as you say, sound in a museum. I mean, there's, I don't know, the museums that are designed to deal with sound in a good way that have good acoustics. I mean, are very few. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And the even the the floors in a museum are are you know, a nightmare for, for dancers, you know, um, in the late last piece I did relational Stalinism musical, there's this, there's this dancer who's dancing this very complicated foot routine, reading these kind of books while she's reading these books that have these satirical titles like uh, dance in the museum, volume one knee surgery. Mm-hmm. But it's, I mean, it's literally the case that, yeah. you know, people that <laughs> there's, you know, the, the floors aren't sprung, yeah, no, which a- means that you can't do, which means the kind of the spaces decide what type of performance yeah. is possible. Yeah. You know? Yeah, and you have to respond to that pretty nimbly. Mm-hmm. Um, huh. And so when you uh, – how are you designing, like, some of the, the – so, Like, when you do something in a museum and yeah. it's – and it's uh, I think um, my friend Nicole Reber had this uh, – she hosted a, a talk at NADA a couple years ago, and it was called The Entertainment Economy. Mm-hmm. No, The the Event Economy. Okay. <coughs> Excuse me. And it was um, – you know, I, I kind of – I. I felt a lot listening to it because it was sort of about this, like being invited to be, you know, the entertainment at dinner right. or the, yeah, the yeah, opening yeah, exactly. the thing or whatever. And, exactly. And so outside of that, though, because sometimes, you know, um, a museum or a gallery will ask, you know, can you come and perform at this thing or, uh-huh. or we'd like something to happen. But when you have like control and you're running a show yeah, that yeah. has several instances, what's the design process like for these batshit crazy sets that you're making? Well, I mean, the the one, the most recent thing I did in a, in a, um, like when I had uh, I had a floor of a museum, the invited of it to to make a piece in this piece, relational Stalinism, the musical, and actually it was very anti-set because I I had eight performers and I wanted to have a very long rehearsal period with them. Like I wanted to have six weeks to develop stuff in a in a room uh, together. Mm-hmm. And so that meant that, you know, that's very expensive, performers. And so that meant that we'd have to spend very little on sonography. But with that one, it was about, I wanted to kind of key up a bunch of different registers along this spectrum of kind of dance, theater, visual arts. So some rooms were very just like, I, I went with the gray floors, the white walls. Others I turned into, made it, put this kind of white, Marley rubber dance floor, a circle of that 
on the floor surrounded by kind of a black background. All the walls were black and uh, another had this miniature stage. Um, some were more really like a felt like a dance theater. So it's just sort of how do you how with the most minimal way possible to key up these different kind of yeah. worlds. Yeah. Um, and then to kind of, I mean, sort of uh, in my mind whatever what i call sort of a bit tongue in cheek but kind of improve ex- existing modes of uh performance within each one of those mm-hmm. worlds you know sort of do my kind of um genetic reengineering of artworks yeah yeah you know? yeah no that makes sense um but i think with some of the other things that have more elaborate sets like with that 27 gnosis um it really had, there was like a steady progression. So I had these gambling tables, which is a very small stage. Then I kind of started to get those three, three more three-dimensional where I was kind of, I had this, these few steps where I, it's like a, a gambling table that slopes up into this pulpit where I'm kind of hovering over people. Yeah. And then the next step was like, okay, I want it to be a kind of totally inclusive, inclusive world. Um, and so I went to my good friend, this architect, Christian Vossman, um, and kind of we brainstormed a lot. I said I wanted to be on uh, – it had to be like a mound of mud, uh, but there has to be a stage within the mud. And then he came up with this idea of a kind of a sphere of mud with the inner sphere, spherical stage, the audience leaning backwards. Mm-hmm. And all these things, it was a really great kind of collaboration because all of his input really helped uh, kind of bring out the power dynamics in that thing. So like – the audience had to lean back at a 30-degree angle. Yeah, like on the Gravitron yeah, or something. Exactly. <laughs> and so there's this weird, like, what we called, like, a comfortable paralysis. You're kind of trapped. 27 people are trapped in my little, in my mound of mud for that time. It's very comfortable, but yet it takes some effort to get off yeah, the stage. Yeah. <laughs> and then when you, when the, the stage surface itself was the top of a sphere, so it's literally destabilizing. You, yeah. you, you come up and you almost fall over, <laughs> you know, so... Yeah, that was a really nice collaboration. Yeah, it's a good use of the like the concept of defensive architecture that uh-huh. they usually just use to fuck with homeless people yeah, or skateboarders yeah, or exactly. something like that. Um, we're going to take a quick break, and we will be right back with more of Michael Borner. In Derry, Maine in the summer of 1989, a group of outcast kids discover a shape-shifting entity who may be linked to the recent cases of missing children in the town, but also face their own personal demons in the process. You already know what it is. Pennywise. The dancing clown. He can also be a spider if I'm remembering correctly and at one point he folds a greaser who burps a lot in half inside of a drainage pipe and this is because of something called the deadlights. Hey! Wait a second! Did anybody else see that Stephen King tweeted out a photo from a rancid concert recently? I was like! Holy fuck! I didn't know that Stephen King was so interested in the early work of artist Dustin Yellen. He was in the band Ranzed. Good God. I haven't even said the name of the movie that I'm supposed to be promoting here. It's called it. Remember the one in the 90s where Tim Curry played the clown? Well, now it's a different guy. 
It's coming back in September and I think the release date is on the 8th. Make sure to buy your tickets to see it. Stephen King, if you're listening, please reach out. I would love to get you to sign my unedited and unabridged copy of The Stand. It is longer than the fucking Bible. You know that clown fucks. Two things that I want to talk about, mm -hmm. actually, as we kind of come to it. And the first one is just simply, um, if you have any thoughts on the the value and also some of the hurdles of collaboration, because you're just describing working with this architect, you're yeah. working with all kinds of different people. And how, uh, how long did it take you to feel like you were pretty comfortable doing the amount of direction that you want to do mm -hmm. and maintain control while still feeling like you're not um, actually being Joseph Stalin? Yeah. Um, well, just in terms of collaborating with artists, I mean, uh, and there's a difference when, like, sometimes you contract people to do something, yeah. and, and they're like, "Hello, I'm, you know, I'm hiring you. I have a budget. You're going yes. to play this role." Right. Versus like working with somebody where it's a little bit more organic. Yeah, I don't know. Like, there's, there's, I mean, collaborations can go awfully, you know. And there's, I, I think back to kind of a really nice collaboration that I did. I think when was it? Like 2006, five. It was a bunch of friends it was um artists um we it was myself marianne vitale mm -hmm. a sculptor um my friend uh sculptor painter theodore fivel uh there's uh agat snow mm -hmm. uh rita ackerman <laughs> uh shoplifter uh, uh she's a icelandic artist and um who else oh god i'm leaving some people out Okay. Well, <laughs> we can't we can't be expected um, to remember every single person. <laughs> anyway, we're basically we we the show was called Invasionistas and we all went to Reykjavik and the idea was what that we were <laughs> Iceland? Yeah. Oh, cuz and, <laughs> and you had a host though. Yeah. Yeah, you had one person. Yeah, we had a, we had a gallery that was hosting it like a non-profit space and then the idea was that we're each invading Iceland uh in different ways. So some are invading by, I was invading by the ooh sound, actually. I was like putting the ooh sound like, ooh, <laughs> into different places around uh, Reykjavik. And then uh, Teo, Teo was poisoning the water system with this, um, this fluorescent dye. Uh, oh, David Adamo, too. Um, he was doing, um, he was uh, invading with um, dark matter. Mm -hmm. and uh agat was like invading sort of the sexuality through magnetism and <laughs> i can't remember the other people uh oh rita was making fake money so she was kind of uh, fucking with the financial system <laughs> but the great thing about that collaboration was we were each sort of like generals of our own mm -hmm. territory and we'd help we'd have our missions and then We'd each assist each other to do our missions, but we didn't fuck with each other's concept, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's like we had our thing, and we'd help other people do their thing. That was a very unique collaboration. It was really – I mean, the piece was a blast to do also because it sounds like you can do all sorts of insane stuff in in a small town like Reykjavik that yeah. you couldn't – for instance, like Marianne and I wanted to – we had an idea to reenact re some kind of evacuation plan that, that uh, Iceland had during World War II. Mm -hmm. And so we'd said, I went to this guy and I said, yeah, I, we want to get um, 
like 35 uh, year olds and we want to march them out of Reykjavik with their favorite 30 and 35 30 30 children who are <laughs> who five, are five years, years old <laughs> we want to march them out of Reykjavik like to the to some kind of hill with their like teddy bears their favorite belongings and this guy's like <laughs> any other city you tell someone this they're like okay yeah, good go luck this is going to take a month or two and the guy was like oh my brother has a has a uh, kindergarten we can do it tomorrow oh and then we <laughs> can't do that shit here yeah, right? <laughs> and so then with permission so, slips and yeah the next day in the morning we had the, the like first grade <laughs> to do whatever we wanted to do with them for the entire day you know i mean it was so that was really fun that's uh, i had a i had a few friends who went to they went to Reykjavik too and they did this uh this guy patrick rock uh buddy of mine matthew green and a guy jason powell who's in this band called guantanamo baywatch but the three of them formed a band called piss that was mm-hmm. just this awful punk band um but they went to iceland to tour mm-hmm. um i think they got a grant to do it and uh-huh. they also ran a hamburger truck that was mm-hmm. called american meat llc mm-hmm. and they kind of described the same thing that there was just like a um a certain receptiveness or just a, a something in the town where people are like well i mean i don't know this is pretty entertaining like mm-hmm. if you guys want to play punk shows every single night at the bars and then sell us hamburgers during the day like we'll humor you yeah like we'll we'll be okay with this. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember them telling me about it before they went and I was like, I don't know, they're going to hate you guys, yeah. man. And he was, and when they came back, they're like, they kind of, they kind of loved it. And we had uh-huh. a blast and it was uh-huh. really fun. And they were like responsive and you could never do that here without people just being like angry with you or something yeah, yeah, like yeah. in the bar, they'd be mad because yeah. you're like when there's like a, uh, when the audience doesn't know that there's stand up happening at the bar that mm-hmm. night, and then people are just like mean and angry mm-hmm. or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, and then, so, and also, I mean, like, I've had some great collaborations with my wife, too. Yeah. Yeah. Misavichute, and she, I mean, because we share a very similar sensibility about performance <laughs> and, and, and humor. And so, yeah, we we did a bunch of projects together. Yeah. And you guys would slap us back and forth at that residency between the workshops and things like that. Uh-huh. Um, and we, you know, we didn't necessarily, we'd have different ones every single day. Um, and there was one that, one that Yeva did where, I, I swear to God, I think it was like, 35 or 40 minutes that uh-huh. we had to just like march around a room at like a pretty you know incredible uh-huh. pace we weren't running and just like yell stream of consciousness uh-huh. the entire time and it you know it doesn't sound like that's terribly difficult but it yeah. was insane after yeah it's, people it's maybe... were screaming in each other's face and i was saying shit that i was like i hope to god no one's listening because uh. you run out of things to say and then well that's that's the, that's the good point of that exercise <laughs> i think like five minutes is one thing but when yeah. you push it to 30 or we, we've was... done that for an hour i mean you get over all of your usual sticks very quickly yeah. you get sick of them and then you yeah. start you know just it really yeah you reach a whole new level of construction of shit this. it's cheaper yeah. than therapy yeah. too and some shit comes out you know yeah, that you yeah. Didn't really know that you had seated in there. Mm. Um, but I, I wanted to make sure to talk with you too a little bit about um, maybe just philosophically about the, you know, you mentioned it earlier that the last few years um, we've certainly seen an increase of comedy mm-hmm. in our context. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I imagine the way that I've heard you talk about it and uh, myself and probably other people is that on the one hand, it's really exciting mm-hmm. and it's cool to be kind of invited into it and yeah. have people be ready to see some ridiculousness mm-hmm. and not think that you're automatically making fun of everything that they care about, mm-hmm. that they're receptive to that. But on the same hand, it's like, I can't help but be a little bit skeptical of some of it um, in terms of just the way, I mean, I think in, you know, I mentioned the 
I had mentioned the residency in a piece I wrote for Art in America a couple of years ago, and there was a partner where I sort of said, you know, there's always in the back of my mind this um, this little bit of fear that what could happen with comedy and mm-hmm. art is that it could become this kind of like, I think I called it like a diet caffeine-free caricature of itself. Mm-hmm. Um, once it gets this institutional support and it gets kind of like absorbed, like, mm-hmm. like anything, institutional critique or relational aesthetics, performance art and... There are obviously great people still working in that, but I'm always like a little bit wary, like, oh, they're doing a, you know, they're doing a comedy night at that place. Yeah. Like, what's, what's the angle? And, yeah, yeah, and yeah. I'm just curious how you feel about that. Or if you're just sort of like flying and going, you know what, I've been doing this for 20 years. So like, let's, let's do it. Yeah. I don't know. I have a lot of mixed feelings about it because, you know, a lot of times you see it done in this really like, okay. We didn't do a comedy thing. Now we've done a lot of dance. Now let's do a comedy. You know, and it is exactly what you're saying. It's like this kind of checking checking it off, and and still it's done in a really flat-footed way. You know, like the jokes show, and then you have you know, <laughs> you you know what I mean. It's not people that are a they go for really kind of one-liner stuff mm-hmm. often, and it's not people that are doing intricate stuff with comedy. And and it's used exactly like you say, like one night of comedy at MoMA or whatever you know what I'm saying yeah and um so I think because there's still this there's still this stigma against it okay we accept that it can happen in the art world Mm -hmm. but still it's not serious art yeah you know and there's still like I remember I was on some panel with David Robbins who I know you're a big fan of his concrete comedy yeah that was the book we read at the residency yeah and he was sort of like, I mean, he was very pessimistic about it. Sort of like, you know, us guys basically on this panel are never going to be the ones in the history books. Like basically like the comedians, the people who are, you know, have more of a, it's still not serious art. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, okay, of course there's lots of arguments against this, you know, but um, oh, it's a question I have. It's a question I have. Um, well, it's, I mean, it's something that I'm, trying to think about too is how will this be um i was just writing something about this too about trying to in the middle of something that's happening trying to take inventory of it and occasionally you know somebody um you know burio calls it relational aesthetics mm-hmm. and it sticks and it's like bingo but it's mm-hmm. also like well you curated the show and wrote the <laughs> i mean it's kind of like but to kind of be watching it happening and trying to take inventory while uh like in the present time is a little bit exhausting because mm-hmm. like, who knows what's going to happen in five years. I mean, it might be dumped and it won't be interesting mm-hmm. to institutions or organizations anymore, but you know, who knows then, you know, people always say, well, when it's on the fringes, it's better or something mm-hmm. like that. But it's a, I don't know. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty open-ended question. I don't really have an angle, but. But also, yeah, it feels like it's a palate cleanser too. Like we did some very heavy, uh, you know, social justice uh, shows and now, now we need to, yeah, we now we need to clean the palette. Let's have a show called, uh, you know, whatever, uh, games. You know, yes. <laughs> you know, and, um, no, no, no. I guess it's, it's, yeah, it's a double-edged sword. I mean, I think it's ultimately, I mean, I, I don't know where I would be if it hadn't become somewhat, you know, accepted. Mm-hmm. And if it hadn't been, someone had given it the green light to happen in these places. I mean, mm-hmm. I've personally and seen a lot of my friends have the opportunity to stage things and do things that sure. 10 years ago, there's no way that they would have let, True. would have never let somebody do it. Um, True. 
But it's interesting too because it kind of has a. There's also a little bit of a, a fucked up economy to it where it's kind of like, oh well, we get all these comedians to perform for free yeah. at this gallery opening mm-hmm. or something to be yes, entertaining, and totally. it's just sort of like, well, you know, I mean, you you kind of like at least follow like the wage certification no, exactly, thing, you know, like exactly. pay pay them, and and I think I've organized plenty of events and tried to explain to places you know that i'm not gonna shit on on a podcast or something but uh it's been really interesting trying to be like they're like well they're only doing 15 minutes Mm -hmm. or something i'm like Mm -hmm. yeah but they've been they've done that piece you don't know how many times they've done that piece Mm -hmm. like you might it's and it's pretty frustrating to try to explain that and it's like yeah and also try to figure out you know for instance you know, dance uh, dance is being acquired by museum is entering mm-hmm. museum collections now. Will will it go to the point where no? I mean, will it go I, to the point where we have routines that uh, yeah. you know Reggie's routine will now be a part of <laughs> MoMA? I mean, also, how do you deal with that? It's it lets if he's doing a completely improvisational routine, how right. do you then acquire that? Yeah, know? I mean, there are sort of, and also there's you know it comes. It's also kind of. You know, one thing I say, like, you know, dance, uh, curators say dance, good, theater, bad, you know, Mm -hmm. it's like this thing where dance is okay, because it's abstract, it's a language we don't understand. So we can't really comment on it. We get to watch a bunch of sexy, uh, young bodies moving around the Mm -hmm. stage. Theater is uh, can be very uncomfortable, it demands more uh, attention. Um, it's too it's messy in a way for the mind you know yeah. you can kind of see dance and space out and sure. you know you can walk in and out what what ever some uh, grandmother from minnesota can love it theater is quite demanding comedy is quite is maybe a little i don't know well i mean it's equally demanding yeah you know no it certainly can be but that's that's pretty funny to think about uh and I, I'll be honest with you, that just had not occurred to me before until you just said that the idea of them buying, like, uh, you know, a routine or something yeah. like that. Like, don't they, I mean, they buy, like, Tino Segal pieces, mm-hmm. right? The, like a score or mm-hmm. something. Exactly, so I yeah. guess you could, could sell a comedy score or something mm-hmm. like that. But how do you, <laughs> I don't know how you own that. Or yeah, and you, are you going to get someone totally a, else telling the joke? Yeah, it's reenacting a, it's an the addition, jokes? It's an addition of this can be performed five times or something like mm-hmm. that. But no, that's pretty funny. But yeah, that's something that always just kind of. I'm just picturing like some kind of guy and some, you know, like some German uh, actor in a museum, <laughs> like trying to do Reggie's routine. <laughs> I, would, I would go to that actually. <laughs> I think that would be great. Well, no, no, Reggie does a he does a British person at the beginning, but does he mm-hmm. speak German? I feel like he he does because there's um, oh no, wait, he speaks French. French. Okay, I just knew he had some. I've just seen him perform and do like the British thing when he begins, yeah, and exactly. you know it's predominantly white audiences, and they're like, "Well, listen to this well-spoken yes. um, black Englishman. This, yes. is really, this is very exciting." And then uh-huh. he just uh, and then he just starts slowly just back into his normal voice, yeah, and exactly. you can kind of see people looking at each other around the room, mm. and it's like, "Oh my mm-hmm. god!" But I think that's the kind of that's the kind of injection that is nice to be uh, shoving into those places. Mm-hmm. Um, well, one thing that I do want to be putting together uh over the next few months is just this kind of uh you know pretty open source but like working bibliography i guess Mm -hmm. for people that are interested in uh, comedy and art and where they intersect and collide and things like that and Mm -hmm. i've you know taught some classes on it and i've sent syllabi not syllabi bibliographies to Mm -hmm. people pretty regularly and i'm just curious if you know, there's uh, there's all the stuff that we read while we were at Banff, but it, I don't know if there's anything that you've read recently or in the last few years that or that people should check out, or even like films or anything like that. This doesn't have to be like a super heady uh, type of thing, or just artists that 
you know, somebody who's listening to this and is kind of new to it uh, might want to check out. Oh, God. Whenever someone asks me these questions, I always forget everything I like. That's that's okay. Um, It's the same thing when I go into – well, I don't buy music anymore. But when you used to go into a record store and you're like, I I know all this music that I like. And then you go in and you can't think of a single thing to fucking buy. Well, uh, let's see. What did I see recently that I got a kick out of? Um, I mean, it's (laughs) – I don't know if I should recommend this. Did you see this film, Greasy Strangler? No. Greasy Strangler? It's by this British director whose name I'm blanking on. Uh, it's kind of it's kind of awful and kind of genius. Yeah. It's like it's a mess and really stupid, but kind of <clears throat> stupid genius. Okay. Um, it's about this kind of – it's a horror sort of film about this guy who sort of has to lather himself up with lard and grease mm-hmm. and strangles people and there's a lot of uh, is that just to throw like a wrench in his own machine to make it very difficult to strangle the people um no there's no clear reason why the <laughs> what the grease does for him but then there's also a lot of really um really over the top uh uh phalluses mm-hmm. uh that like kind of constructed phalluses that are on yeah <laughs> That's pretty good. I just saw what movie did I? I just saw the Bad Batch. Bad Batch. It's the oh my gosh, I'm blanking on the director's name, but she is the director of, uh, I believe it's called A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. Mm-hmm. Um, oh yeah, and, yeah, yeah. But it's this new movie, and it's this slapstick, outrageous, like cannibal mm-hmm. type of thing, and this excommunicated uh, group of criminals in this like pseudo sovereign like outside u.s board i mean it's maybe a metaphor for australia but, uh-huh. um but uh just this crazy kind of movie like that that i really got a kick out of and i thought was critically really interesting although completely ridiculous mm-hmm. and silly uh and really painterly and all these other things mm-hmm. that i typically don't uh think about in movies and i've talked to a few people about it and i it was playing at like one theater and mm-hmm. i went and saw it and people were like i've never heard of that fucking movie and i was like it's it's really good keanu reeves plays a cult leader and he's dosing everyone with lsd and mm-hmm. like it's just outrageous but that was a that was a pretty good one but i think i mean you did put together and i mean that's something that i want to share but there was like you mentioned earlier that david robbins concrete comedy mm-hmm. and i think the um the Wayne Kestenbaum one was the... Oh, that's amazing. The Harpo Speaks. Yeah. That's such an amazing book. Yeah. Is it Anatomy of Harpo Marx or something? Is that the oh, title? I thought, oh, wait. Maybe there is an actual other book called Harpo, Sparks, ha, uh, Harpo Speaks. But maybe that's right. Anatomy of Harpo Marx. I think that's the... Because that's the one where he's talking about like all the like gender bending and all this crazy stuff. Well, it's stuff amazing that, what he does. He goes through every one yeah, of like, Harpo's <laughs> movies and every one of his bits and yeah. kind of tries to classify them and... Uh, no, it's just a beautiful, like, such a rich book. Yeah, yeah, that wow. was a that was a pretty big treat. To, I mean, that was like this kind of like long sustained engagement with this one particular thing that I really yeah. thought was like even just as like a research topic, very resonant, just with the way that somebody's trying to think about how to make something funny and just uh-huh. beating it to death and going yes. through it really worked. And Wayne wrote this other book that I had him in a class, and he wrote this book called Humiliation. That's oh yeah, really yeah, short. sure, sure, sure. That was also a, really good. Yeah, that was a good fodder for a class discussion yeah, and things yeah. like that. Um, and I can't remember if we got – did you have that Mel Watkins book on Which that too? That? It's on the real side. It's like a it's like a history of basically like African-American comedy from like um, – I don't think I know about that. Oh, I thought I picked it up there. But that's a really, that's a really good one too. And I'm also just saying these things out loud because I'm trying to remember them yeah. for myself. But 
Um, yeah, and if you then if you, there's a bunch of like nerdy humor theory books that I remember I I, I uh, <laughs> put on that list like uh, linguistic theories of humor, yeah, all of yeah. this. Kind. I mean, I just love those things. I don't think it teaches you how to be funny. In any no, 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 no. <laughs> but they're funny to make. They're, they're, the terminology they use to describe jokes is quite funny to me. Yeah, you know? no, entirely. Like the specificity to which they break down like every micro part of a of a joke. Yeah, you know? yeah. there's kind of like an in between book of that that. Uh, Simon Critchley wrote uh, uh-huh, yeah, yeah, on yeah. humor that right. has a lot of that, but is um, in some it's more parts, philosophical, some, I think. Yeah, right? and in some parts, like a little bit funny. Yeah, but not like <laughs> not like laugh out loud, but a little also, less. <laughs> also, that well, you mean like U- UCB's manual to improvisation? I mean, it's really like um, it's really for improvisers, but I think it's a great way to think about. I mean, they a great way to think about uh, structuring. What make actually what makes something funny, you know, yeah. and how you kind of build up the the laugh and kind of how you find the absurd thing in a situation and keep on finding permutations of it. And I think it can be adapted to so many different. Yeah, uses. absolutely. Yeah, and I think that you know, there's obviously improv gets a, a bad rap just because mm-hmm. people have seen a lot of bad improv. Yeah. But there's uh, clearly you know, people have studied this and really thought about it and it's really useful stuff. I think we used a lot of those yeah, techniques sure. and things like that. And I would recommend that- everyone to see TJ and Dave the next time they come to New York. So they're, I don't know if you know about them, uh-huh. but it's, it's, it's these two guys. They're, uh, they're kind of regarded to be the best improvise. Well, one of the best improvisers in, in the, uh, in the U S they're based in Chicago. They come to New York every few months and it's just two of them on a stage, uh, for an hour with no it's no taking audience suggestions or anything they just enter the stage two guys in their mid-40s look at each other and then start developing this insanely complex world where they play 10 different characters each and go through this whole you know you see the architecture that they're dealing with you see a a hospital a gas station and it's not like this jokey joke kind of thing it's all about minute kind of character stuff but they're just to see masters like this work is and to see a totally different type of improvisation this this long form thing that that's not the herald that's not these kind of games but just two people developing this this world together is Yeah. yeah it's amazing yeah, that's really good. It's TJ and Dave. Yeah. Is that what it's called? Mm-hmm. I gotta look that up. That sounds really good. All right. Well, uh, yeah, thanks for spending some time with sure me thing. in the studio here. Uh, sure this was really thing. great, and I'm glad to see you. It's been yeah, a minute. you too. Um, so thanks so much to Michael Portnoy, and uh, we'll see you all next week. I've got a chicken, chicken on my legs. That's right, chicken on my legs. It's alive. Oh, I've got a chicken, chicken on my legs girl because my legs are very cold so cold as cold as Estonian snow with ice and frozen machines I don't know but I mean frozen trucks and frozen tractors I don't know so the chicken warms me up chicken is moving the chicken is moving now my legs are heating heating up heating up hot hot nice and hot nice and hot the chicken is scratching the chicken is scratching i've earned this and the chicken says give me corn 
Give me corn. I like all the corn, bitch. Give me corn. Give me corn. I like all the corn, bitch. 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 Yes. Put the corn in. Put the corn in. Put the corn in, bitch. Put the corn into my ass. Put the corn in. Put the corn in. Put the corn in, bitch. Put the corn into my ass. My chicken ass into my ass. My chicken ass into my chicken. My chicken ass into my ass. My chicken ass into my ass. Chicken bacteria. 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 Chicken ass. Chicken bacteria. 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 Bacteria in my ass. This is why my legs are so very hot tonight. Okay. <laughs>